0: You may be seated. So a few weeks ago when Brian Yost was here preaching in, in my behalf, and he talked about how our worship team is able to lead worship and preach a sermon like no other, well, they're really good at that, aren't they? So, Megan, you guys did a great job this morning. It's not just, it's not just about having good musicians and good music. There is, there, is rich, there is not a wasted stanza in that worship set. The content is so good. She does a great job picking them out of the team, does a good job of expressing it. Uh, I'm Joe Davis, the pastor here at Grace Life. Welcome to those that are here and those that are watching online, wherever you may be. Uh, uh, Just a reminder, on Thursday, Christmas Eve, unplugged, uh, Al and Megan and I will be doing a really unique, different type of Christmas Eve service up here. I'm excited about it, and uh, so be sure you, when you get the email uh, tomorrow that you sign up for that. Um, let's go on to the slides for the, the sermon. Do I need to click it or, there we go. All right. So we're continuing with our series on the gospel of Mark week number 57. I've entitled this message, the God of the living. We probably have about 15, maybe 17, 20, 25, 30 messages left (laughs) in the gospel of Mark. And I wish it was going to get easier, but it just, Jesus just doesn't seem to let up. And, um, so it's, this, I'm really excited about this one. We're talking about the resurrection. So the other day, I had somebody that barely knows me, doesn't really know me at all, right? And they were scoffing at me for believing in my, what he called, imaginary friend, and my imaginary place in heaven. They were literally scoffing at me in person. Now, I wasn't shaken by this, because I know what I believe, and I know why. But it made me stop to ponder, what is it about Jesus That motivates me and us so much to make it worth following him, to make it worth being someone we would pattern our life after. Why are we even bothering to be part of a church family? Why do we even bother to attend worship on Sunday morning? Why do we give money? Why do we volunteer? Why do we serve? Why do Christians have this affinity for this thing we call the Bible? Why do we even care what it says? It's just an old book that dead guys wrote. Why is the word biblical one of the important main core values, mobile, organic, biblical, and generous of grace life? Why is biblical in there? Why is that an important value? What inspires our passionate devotion, our willingness to forego worldly pleasures For the sake of following Jesus. Wouldn't life just be a lot easier if we didn't have to bother with the emotional connection and investment in following Jesus? Well, I'll tell you why I think we do it. I think it's the promise of a resurrection. A promise of a life after this one and all of the glorious things that come with it. I'll tell you this, without the promise of a resurrection, without that hope, let me tell you what Christianity is. It's a waste of your time. It is absolute sheer silliness and foolishness. It's folly, this Christian thing, without a resurrection. With no eternal reward for our faith, or the fact if there's maybe even no accountability for evil in this world, then this flawed life becomes our only hope. I can promise you this. Rationally, logically speaking, if it weren't for the promise of a resurrection that I so passionately believe in, I would not waste my time being your pastor. There'd be a lot more important things to deal with, because at the end of life, that's it. See, that's the focus of today's passage on our series on the Gospel of Mark. It's the resurrection. Let's look at the, the passage we're looking at today. It's Mark chapter 12, 18 through 27. <clears throat> and the Sadducees came to him, who say that there's no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, Jesus The first one took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second brother took her, and then he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven, she went through seven brothers. Was it the cooking? I don't know. (laughs) Seven brothers, no offspring. And then last of all, finally, after the seven brothers died, she died. In the resurrection, Jesus, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is not the reason you are wrong because you, need, you, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry or our, or, nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses? <laughs> in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. History of the passage. I want to talk about the resurrection challenge. First, it's important for you to understand the role of this idea of the resurrection with first century Jews. Frankly, with Jews throughout history. Historically, the resurrection was a core tenet of Judaism going all the way back to Moses. As a matter of fact, it's much more so than it is today. Most people who follow Judaism don't really have a passion one way or the other about a resurrection. Some of them do. A lot of them don't believe in a resurrection at all. Now, many prophets spoke of a resurrection. As a matter of fact, it's all through the Old Testament. Virtually all major non-biblical Jewish writings, like the Talmud, had significant references to this doctrine and idea of a resurrection. David wrote and spoke about a resurrection quite a bit throughout the Psalms. Matter of fact, on the story about uh, when he had an affair with, with Bathsheba and the child was born and then that child died, he says, I will see him again. There are poems and songs and stories throughout Jewish culture speaking about this personal resurrection, but they also believed in a national resurrection. See, the resurrection had two applications. They believed in the resurrection of Israel as a nation, back to world dominance, back to world prominence. And during Jesus' life, the Pharisees, that group, were the defenders of this dual resurrection belief. And they passionately embraced it and defended it and taught it. There was a flaw, however, in how they believed in the resurrection. They believed that once you were resurrected, life continued with all the good things you had in this life, a marriage, riches, and all those things, plus a bunch of other good stuff. So they believed that life kind of continued as it is today. Then you have the Sadducees. <clears throat> We've talked a little bit about them. I'm going to go a bit more detail about who they are. See, the Pharisees were the majority among the people. But the Sadducees were actually the ruling majority in the Sanhedrin. Remember, we talked about who the Sanhedrin was last week, this, this group of elites that made all the decisions and led Israel. The Sadducees, they oversaw the priesthood in the temple. As a matter of fact, the high priest was a Sadducee. All the way down, they were all Sadducees, every priest. They actually ran the temple business, this secular group of people who did not believe in a resurrection, they are running the house of worship. They were experts on all the Mosaic law, the first five books of the Bible that we call the Pentateuch. They were rich, powerful, ruthless, elite temple lawyers. They were philosophical elites. They didn't travel around Israel like the Pharisees did, talking and teaching everyone. All of the Sadducees' time was spent in Jerusalem, primarily with one task— Enforcing harshly temple rules and Mosaic law. And they ran this temple and enforced these laws with severe harshness. Enforced all the rules from the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. And if you ever read Leviticus, (laughs) that's a lot of rules. That's just one book. They were oppressive. In enforcing them. Not only that, they were hypocritical in enforcing them. They put this burden on everyone. Matter of fact, Jesus said about them, You are like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You heap burdens on other men you yourself are not even willing to bear. You know something else about the Sadducees? You know, they actually rejected every book in the Old Testament after the Pentateuch. After the book of Deuteronomy, all the rest of it was considered hogwash to them. It was inferior and had no authority. They rejected the Psalms. They rejected the prophets. And they rejected even the history books as being inspired. And any non-biblical writings, like I mentioned earlier, the Talmud and all the writings of the scribes and all the rabbis, all that stuff out the window. Don't worry about it. Never read it. Don't look at it. It means nothing. And they insisted because their theology was derived just from the book of, books of Moses, those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which they believed had no explicit teaching of a resurrection. They insisted that once you die, that's it. No afterlife, no hope, nothing. This world, this life, these, this breathing on this planet is all that you have, and you must live it how we direct you to. <laughs> No personal resurrection, no national restoration of Israel. This life is all there is. It explains why they had this love affair with big Rome, does it not? I mean, Rome fed into everything, right? It's a big kingdom with all this power. They've invested all this power in us. We love Rome. We don't have any interest in the restoration of the throne of David. We like the throne of Caesar. Man, what a terrible religion, (laughs) right? All the burdens of self-righteousness and religion and rules and all that kind of stuff, but no faith, no, no eternal hope, they are just an absolutely miserable lot. And the Pharisees, they would endlessly debate with the Sadducees, right, about the resurrection, trying to convince them. But the problem was the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible, so the Pharisees would try to say, well, fine, I'll use the Pentateuch to, dis- to, uh, to prove to you that there is a resurrection. It was an endless debate. They never could do it. They always failed. They didn't know it well enough for some reason. And with each failure, these Sadducees became more arrogant, scoffing at anyone who had the ira- irrational view or belief that there was some sort of resurrection. Which brings us to what I call the black widow. <laughs> you know, you read this story with me, right? About, is this woman like a serial killer or something? Like, who is she, right? What are the odds? <laughs> the Sadducees... The intellectual elites that they think they are, they have decided they are superior to the Pharisees who tried to use this thing about taxes to trap Jesus. By the way, this is all the same day. It's what we have called Confrontation Wednesday. It's the day before Monday, Thursday. They're going to use their their impeccable logic, their superior reasoning and philosophy to take Jesus down publicly, to make him look like a fool. See, Jesus taught the resurrection. So, they assume that he kind of embraces the same flawed Pharisaical view about resurrection and the eternity of marriage and all those different types of things. And I sort of understand where the Sadducees would be thinking because I know many Christians today who believe things that are really foolish and irrational when it comes to facts. And it makes them look kind of silly. I'm not going to get into any of them, but about 8 of them just went through my head and I'm but I'm not going to call them out, but when you don't know your scripture, you can believe some things that are kind of silly that the rest of the world will say, Oh, that's your Jesus, that's kind of stupid. So what they will do instead is they use this hypothetical riddle to publicly expose Jesus' teachings on the resurrection as something that are absurd. They're foolish, they're illogical, they're irrational. This hypothetical of these seven brothers and one wife is based on this Jewish custom called leveret marriage. And it's described in there, if, you, if a man dies before he has any children, his brother would marry the widow, and they would have an heir to preserve the brother's line. The child was considered fully counted as the dead brother's heir. And they lay out this ridiculous seven dying brothers scenario. You know, if I were, you know, this woman's third or fourth brother, I'd be kind of watching my back, like, what's going on? I mean, she's really going through them quick. And Jesus, when she dies and is resurrected with her seven husbands, whose wife will she be? They think they've got him. See, Jesus, you believe this thing about the resurrection and the marriage, just like the Pharisees. It's really kind of silly, isn't it? Like, there's no, there's no solution to this problem we just posed you. Let's look at the spiritual part of this. What about God or Jesus? What is he doing? Why and how does he do it? Basically, I've titled this section, You're All Wrong. <laughs> See, Jesus quickly establishes who the real intellectual elites are in this confrontation. And he says this, Is not the reason you're wrong that you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God? I want you to focus in on the word that Jesus actually uses for wrong. It's a very powerful description of who these arrogant Sadducees really are. It's the Greek word planeo. It means to wander, to go astray from safety or truth or virtue. You know what English word we get from Planeo? Planets. It means wandering heavenly bodies. He's saying, is it not true that your wandering logic is mistaken and all over the place because it's like you've never even read the books of Moses and you have no understanding of the power of God? You know what he's saying? You experts on the law, on the first five books, you're asking me this question you, are so, you have wandered so far from the books of Moses, it's almost as if you've never even cracked it open to look at it. That's a pretty bold thing for Jesus to say and for everyone in the temple, right? There's still thousands of people there following him, listening to every word. They, they lay this trap, and he says, guys, you've wandered so far away, it's like you don't even have a Bible. So what he does is he begins to correct some errors. No, Jesus doesn't just correct the Sadducees. In one fell swoop, in one sentence, he also corrects the Pharisees, who had just taken their shot a few moments ago and failed. First, he addresses this idea of marriage in heaven. He says, there is no need for marriage in heaven. There's no children to be born. No one's alone. We become singular spiritual beings with one singular focus. We are all together captivated by the glory and power and majesty of God, and that is our only desire, our only passion, our only focus. He says that's what the nature of the resurrection is. It's all about the God of the living and not about us. But then he brings us this idea of I am. Now, church, I want you to pay very close attention to what Jesus does with this. I love it. He references one of the most well-known Moses stories, the burning bush. And he focuses on the words, I am. And here it is from Exodus 3.6. And he said, this is God talking in the book of Exodus. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. It's not, you know, Moses, I was the God of Abraham when he was alive, etc., Moses Isaac and Jacob, I was the God of all those guys when they were living. God of men, or, you know, men of God who are already dead. Jesus wasn't making some nostalgic claim of empty heritage or tradition. He says, I am their God. Jesus says, in fact, if you'll know this, in the Old Testament, in Genesis and Exodus, he actually repeats this phrase quite often. He does it in Genesis 26-24. He says the same thing in Genesis 28, 13. He does it four times in the book of Exodus alone, where God describes a present tense relationship with these beloved deceased patriarchs. He says, I am still their God. They are still worshiping me as their God. And in verse 27, he absolutely buries them. He says, he is not the God of the dead. But the God of the living, you are quite wandering. You are quite wrong. He calls them wandering twice. Remember what wrong means? I just shared with that the wandering mistakenly. He says, your, request, your question reveals to me this. You are absolutely lost. It's brilliant because what Jesus does, he, he declares, what good, Sadducees, is having a God who's only God of those who die and stay dead? What's the point? If there's no no resurrection, if there's no eternal hope, what kind of feckless, empty God do you serve? No, no. God is the God of the living, not the dead. You are quite wrong. And what he has exposed is these guys are blind experts. It was all under their noses the whole time. Six times in the first two books... It's a total embarrassment. Both these groups are absolutely mortified in public. Two expert groups who historically obsess seemingly over every word in the scripture, yet somehow they miss something that seems to be so obvious, right? Jesus says, oh, this is very simple, guys. There's no marriage in in the resurrection. And in addition, I am the God of the living. Why didn't they have eyes to see? Well, Matthew describes it when Jesus says this at the time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden. Think about this. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Little children is a picture of people who are castoffs in society. Wise and understanding would be people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the scribes. In three sentences, Jesus proves the resurrection from the Pentateuch. And he corrects bad theology in the Pharisees and he embarrasses the Sadducees as being foolish. All of them are embarrassed. Think of the wasted centuries of expert debate, right? Between the Pharisees and the Sadducees on this resurrection deal. God of those who are living proves that the resurrection from their Pentateuch is real. They were the ones who were the illogical, irrational fools. Imagine the people that are watching. Yeah, that's pretty simple. We can see it. How could these experts that we have been under oppression to for so long miss this? Jesus made it pretty clear. These guys are the experts? They don't seem to know much of anything. The expert Pharisees who believed in a resurrection but had it all wrong at its core... They were wanderers. The expert Sadducees who knew the Pentateuch better than anyone else, but still rejected resurrection, they too are wanderers. Let's look at the personal. What about us? What do we do and why and how do we do it? I want to talk about this question I'm asking. Where's our hope? This was the Sunday Sermon Preview this week. I wrote it. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I wrote the first one at like 5.15 a.m. on Friday, and it was really bad. It was really not good, so I asked Megan to help me rewrite it. Is is what we came up with. The promise of a resurrection births a life of hope, far superior to the alternative, which is an empty secular pursuit that ends with an eternal eclipse. So what is our hope? Where is it? First, I want to tell you, I think, where there's two places our hope come from. First of all, our hope comes from the Old Testament, which is fascinating, right? So let me put this verse up in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, Jesus gives us an incredible lesson here of how we should view and study Scripture. Believing with confidence that every word in the Scripture is inspired and every word is important. Just think about this. This is why we study the Scriptures the way we do. Each word is crucial. There are no wasted words in Scripture. What Jesus does in pointing out, I am, reminds me just how stunning the Scriptures are in their infinite, miraculous detail. The difference the word I am versus I was makes in Genesis and for all the rest of the scripture is foundational. It's crucial. It's transcendent. It's so simple, right? I am the God of these men who have died. Yet it's so profound. Isn't that the beauty of our scriptures? Isn't that why we love them and adore them? Isn't that why we are constantly in our own personal reading amazed by them? Wow, I never saw that before. How did I miss that? Oh my goodness, that's so rich, that's so deep. Yet like Sadducees, there are actually Christians today who view the Old Testament as irrelevant. We have the New Testament. We don't need to teach the Old Testament anymore. A guy named Andy Stanley actually does this. He says we don't need to teach from the Old Testament. Today's story, today's New Testament makes the Old Testament look Irrelevant. Well, that's foolish. The resurrection may seem like it is actually a New Testament theology, right? But according to Jesus, who was teaching from where? The first five books of the Bible. It is an Old Testament theology of hope. You know when Paul preached the gospel and he preached the resurrection, he never once preached from the New Testament. You know why? It wasn't written yet. All he had to preach from was the Old Testament. And he was perfectly armed with truth, and he was perfectly content in preaching from the Old Testament, quoting the prophets, quoting Moses, the Psalms. I will tell you, as Christians, we have every reason to have hope in and cherish the Old Testament. We don't run from it. We're not intimidated by it. We hold the Old Testament as a treasure trove of incredible truths that we desperately need to understand today. So that's our first source of hope, is the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament. The second hope is the resurrection hope. <clears throat> Look at this verse in 1 Corinthians 15.19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. That's what Paul says. He says, if you have a Christianity that doesn't embrace the resurrection, you're a pathetic Waste of time. See, church, why is the resurrection so critical? Well, according to Paul, what's the point of following Jesus if there's no resurrection? I'll tell you, nothing. There is no point. Christianity becomes a life of pointless misery, a big waste of time, a life to be pitied, (laughs) as Paul says. In other words... Our faith would be the most pointless, hopeless, fraudulent pursuit in all the world without a resurrection. There would be no reason for us to entertain it. But Paul says something in Philippians that's powerful. Here's what Paul says. Our citizenship is in heaven. There's an eternal idea, a resurrection idea. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His, glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So what will the resurrection look like? Why should we hope in it? Paul describes it a little bit. It is far greater than any hope this temporal world could ever promise you. We become just like Christ, physically, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, in every way. You know what else happens? We have this perfect, physically, Flawless fellowship with one another, flawless worship, and a flawless, full, completely satisfying relationship with the Father, the God of the living. Full knowledge, along with complete, undiminished. Never-ending joy. Which? How do we define that here at Grace Life? It is the supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God over anything the world has to offer. That's what joy is. It's not an emotion. It is a satisfaction. Gone is fear. Gone is worry. Gone are pandemics and sickness and hunger and grief and discouragement and failure and greed and any worldly ambition that might derail you We become wholly satisfied with the presence of the God of the living. So with that in mind, with those two hopes, I'm going to leave you with this last question. Do you believe? Let me read to you a verse from John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, to set it up so you know when when this was. This was right at, at the grave of Lazarus right before Jesus resurrected Lazarus and and took him from death to life. And he's talking to Martha there, and he says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes or lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he asked her a question, do you believe this? I'm asking you this question. You see, living with anticipation of a resurrection, knowing this life isn't all there is, that is, church, the core of our hope. That's the whole point. That's why Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Right at Lazarus' grave, right before he resurrected Lazarus, he says, Martha, this is who I am. Do you believe it? For us, if you're here, if the answer is no, why are you even bothering following God at all? If he's not the God of the living, I'm going to tell you, don't waste your time. He isn't merely Jesus, this guy we talk about a lot in the gospel of Mark. He isn't merely a personification of some philosophy. He's not just some ancient teacher of moral principles and social justice. He's so much more than that. That's why he said he is the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the only path. To the God of the living. The only escape from the end result of every hope and comfort and promise that this world offers you, the only escape is the eternal eclipse of the grave. That's the only resolution you have to look forward to in this world. Are you like the Sadducees? Or have you been given eyes to see the glory? Of this promise throughout the scriptures. So, my question for you is the same one that Jesus had for Martha at Lazarus's grave. Do you believe this? Church, do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection? Is that your hope? Is that the reason why you follow Him and are obedient to Him and tell others about Him and are a part of His church and His kingdom and His family? Is that the reason? If it's not, what's the point? That is what sets us apart. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, The life and the resurrection, whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we often get very distracted by the promises this world makes. Promises for hope. But rationally, logically speaking, we know that all those promises end the same way. But yet your promise, if we have been given the gift of faith and the ability to believe in it, promises us that we shall never die. Lord, we confess to you that sometimes we follow you without our focus being on the resurrection. Lord, help us today to refocus our efforts, refocus our motivation, refocus why we want to follow you. It's because we have a hope in a life that is to come. Any other life, any other belief, makes following you pointless. Because we believe you are the resurrection and the life. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, that was week 57. Next week, we've got some more coming. Uh, Don't forget Thursday, we're going to be here for Christmas Eve Unplugged. I'm really looking forward to it. It's a good family-friendly service, so make sure you sign up for that. Uh, We love you guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks for watching online. If you need anything, please let us know.